0: Welcome to the Ace Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Roods, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. Acedit is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the NIDA funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN. Through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. In our last episode, we got a bird's eye view of the neuroscience of opioid addiction and some of the ways scientists are studying it. In this episode, we discuss one particularly important phenomenon that works to perpetuate problematic opioid use, withdrawal, or what happens to the body when opioids begin to break down. We know that opioids cause a waterfall of changes to the brain and other parts of the body. So what happens when those changes begin to lose their engine? As you undoubtedly know, the body does not simply revert back to factory settings. For those taking short-acting opioids like heroin, withdrawal symptoms set in in about 6 to 12 hours after last use. For those taking long-acting opioids like methadone or buprenorphine, withdrawal symptoms set in about one day or 30 hours after last dose. First, you feel agitated, anxious, your muscles ache and spasm. You're yawning, but you can't sleep. You sweat with goosebumps like your body's forgotten how to work. Then you start to experience abdominal cramping, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and tremors. It's 72 hours of hell. And without proper medication, it may be up to two years of mood swings, cravings, drug dreams, anxiety, depression, irritability, agitation, insomnia, poor concentration, and a daily war to avoid triggers. Without proper medication, it is very likely that every day, all day, your brain will tell you to go use. And it is not simply a matter of willpower. Dr. Corey Waller, a nationally recognized addiction expert, explains what they saw when they evaluated the cravings for opioids in a person's brain and compared it to the cravings for food in subjects who had not had food for four or five days and the cravings for water in subjects who had not had water for three days. When the researchers tested how much the dehydrated brain craved water, Dr. Waller likens the area of the brain that lit up in response to the water, to the size of a baseball. When testing how much the starved brain craved food, he likened it to the size of a basketball. When the opioid-craved brain was scanned and tested for opioid cravings, he likened the strength of the reaction to a baseball field. And those cravings were the same, whether a person was 30 days, 90 days, or two years post-use. And the way the cravings work is that they are unrelenting, which means a person has to make a decision every few minutes or so not to use. But our ability to make a good decision is weakened when we have to make a lot of decisions. Imagine having to make the same decision over and over all day. By the end of the day, decision fatigue almost assures that we will reuse. Another dark side of withdrawal is the role it plays in opioid overdose deaths. A person who withdraws without any medication to help address their cravings now faces the world right at the point that two major risk factors have converged. The withdrawal and the lack of opioids has lowered their tolerance and the lack of medication has increased their desire for more opioids. They are now at a higher risk for overdose than ever before withdrawing. And where might a person withdraw from opioids without any medication to address cravings? In our prisons and jails. Many prisons and jails will offer quote unquote comfort medication. A cocktail of medications to address blood pressure, anxiety, and nausea. They may get Gatorade to help with dehydration and aspirin to help with body aches, but none of those drugs address the real issue the missing dopamine in the brain. Nothing addresses the cravings. Only 10% to 12% of the nation's 4,000 jails are trying some form of addiction medication as part of treatment. And yet every day, tens of thousands of people are released from jails and prisons around the country. If even a small percentage have an opioid use disorder, that is still thousands of people. In fact, in the two weeks after release, Recently incarcerated people are almost 42 times more likely to die from an overdose than the general population. In the year 2020, 93,000 people died of opioid overdose in the US. As NIDA director Nora Volkov noted recently in the Scientific American, quote, the science of the matter is unequivocal. Addiction is a chronic and treatable medical condition, not a weakness of will or character, or a form of social deviance, but stigma and longstanding prejudices, even within healthcare, lead decision makers across healthcare, criminal justice, and other systems to punish people who use drugs rather than treat them, unquote. Nowhere is this choice more evident than in the disparity between the treatment of pregnant women with OUD, or opioid use disorder, in incarceration settings as compared with those with OUD who are not pregnant. A majority of prisons and jails offer opioid use disorder medications, typically methadone, as an option to pregnant women with OUD and then discontinue the medication post-delivery. The practice is fueled by the grave harm withdrawal can cause to pregnancy, and it is a concern for the unborn child. This approach reveals the real lack of compassion for those people with opioid use disorder, as if the woman, no longer pregnant, also no longer matters. Whether it's a woman forced into agonizing withdrawal hours after giving birth or others who find themselves incarcerated and untreated, the policy to treat one during a pregnancy humanely, but not treat all people humanely, is a choice. As Dr. Volkov notes, quote, compassion, care, and support need to extend to those still using drugs and those who return to drug use, not just to those who can satisfy the stringent standards of abstinence, unquote. Perhaps if those in a position to treat individuals with opioid use disorder learned more about the nature of addiction and the role of withdrawal, we could begin to build a collective understanding that not only is putting people with drug addiction behind bars and underinvesting in prevention and compassionate medical care not working, but also why, and through this process, perhaps the irrationality and the cruelty of current practices would also become more evident and we would want to remedy them. That wraps another episode of the ace It podcast. We thank you for listening to ace It, where we translate science into sense. Also remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews. For all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.acetit.com jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here. And they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. Additionally, we'd like to thank Nida, Dr. Faye Taxman, and all the students and staff at ACE, including our podcast mastermind doctoral candidate Shannon Magnuson, who is the brainchild behind this podcast. Oh wait, two more quick things. If you're a researcher and you'd like us to consider using one of your research articles or reports for an upcoming podcast, please send it to me, Danielle, at drudes at gmu.edu. If you'd like to support our podcast to keep the sense coming, please tell your friends and colleagues about us or assign this podcast to your students or staff. Thanks again, and please tune in again soon for another informative episode of the Aced Podcast, Translating Science into Sense.